Hi there, Door of Hope. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Bryce. I am the prayer coordinator here at the church, and I just want to say happy Sunday and that, to let you know that we are thinking of you and praying for you, and that we really miss meeting with you and gathering together. Um, I just encourage you in this time in the best way that you can to find community and connect with others, whether it be praying or talking on the phone or meeting in a park. Uh, connection is just so important right now. Um, I also just want to let you know before we go into the sermon and before we go into a time of worship uh, about the different uh, events that we have going on and opportunities for you to connect. One is that we have a Bible study happening Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in the church parking lot. Um, you can find the information to register for that on the church website on our events page. And then also I wanted to talk to you about prayer. Um, we recognize such a necessity to be praying right now and to be gathering in unity to pray. And so beginning August 10th, uh, we will hold uh, 30 consecutive days of prayer on Mount Tabor in the amphitheater. And it'll be just a time for us to join together, to be in one body and one spirit, and to pray for our nation and our city and our, um, just our churches and ask that the Lord would soften our hearts to what He wants to do. So I just invite you to those things. You can find that information on our, the website. And before we begin the entering a time of worship, I just wanted to read the scripture for today to you. It's James 4, 6 through 10. Scripture says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And if you'll just join me before we begin, I'm going to pray for us. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you that your mercy is new. Um, and we ask, Lord, as we gather together, wherever we are, Lord, and we listen to the sermon and we enter a time of worship, Lord, that you would open our hearts. Um, you would open our minds and our ears to hear what you have to say, Lord, and that you would convict us and change us and remind us that we are loved by you. We just ask all these things in your name. Amen. All glory. 
Door of Hope. Uh, so good to be with all of you today. I'm really excited uh, because we are going to begin a journey through the seven deadly sins. Now, you may be asking, why would I pick a series called The Seven Deadly Sins? And is The Seven Deadly Sins even a biblical concept? And it's true that, that this list of transgressions that were considered by the early church to be fatal to spiritual progress may not be a list drawn directly from Scripture, but I can promise you that all of these sins that flow out of the sin problem uh, are all very biblical. And although there are many more than seven uh, outworkings of, of sin as the central issue uh, with humanity, uh, these seven truly are uh, central to our understanding of what it means to be human, especially uh, in today's climate where I see uh, actively being demonstrated amongst believers in a time in which we are isolated, in a time where more energy is spent in battles in social media, where the news feed is endless, where there is continued national unrest, uh, where there is, what is it, 60 something days straight of protests downtown uh, that moved from conversations around race to now it seems to be primarily about uh, governmental overreach and the sending in of federal troops into our city as a political ploy. Uh, all of these things have created an incredible amount of unrest and I think that it's bringing to the surface something that much of humanity ignores or even denies and that is sin is the root of all of our problems. Uh, for sin is our determination to be our own gods, to define for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Now. The seven deadly sins probably go back to the desert fathers, and it was an attempt to kind of create this list of what were considered mortal sins, those, those sins that would impact a pilgrim's uh, advancement in, in spiritual progress. And, and so it's always contrasted with virtues. And we're gonna do something somewhat similar. And today we're gonna to begin with the sin of pride. It really is the sin that all other sins flow from. Uh, in the Latin, it is superbia. It is to be self-centered. And what we want to move toward is humility and surrender. Now, Proverbs chapter 16, verse five says, Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Again, in Proverbs 21, verse 4, it says, A haughty look, that is a, a proud look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Again, in Proverbs 28, verse 25, He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Proverbs 29, verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Think about James, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The head and the origin of all sin is pride. So how do we define this word? 
what do we think of when we think of pride? Because pride is not used in our particular culture negatively. Uh, it's generally used as something that we uh, say to demonstrate our accomplishments. We're proud of our work, we're proud of our parenting, we're proud of our, our heritage, whatever it may, might be. We don't generally, at least those outside of the church, view pride as the central problem with the human dilemma. Uh, Dorothy Sayers said it best in Creator Chaos when she said, it is the sin of trying to be as God. It is the sin that proclaims that man can produce out of his own wits and his own impulses and his own imagination the standards by which he lives, that man is fitted to be his own judge. It is pride that says, I am the master of my own universe. At its heart, it is independence from God and it is human-centric. This is the essence of the sin in the garden because what the serpent tempted our first parents toward was to define for themselves what was right and wrong. By going against God's command, they were in essence acting as their own gods. And the moment that entered in what was the natural outcome of sin, it is relational separation, a separation that ultimately leads to death, uh, for the wages of sin is death. And I think that this is important for us to understand that the root of all of our problems is a self-centeredness. And it's a problem that I find in my own life. There is no escaping it. It continually rears its ugly head. It is this overly confident belief that I somehow have an edge to those around me. I mean, think about this. When you engage uh, with the news or social media, the ways that we can begin to believe that we somehow have a much better grasp on what is going on than those around us. The ways that we elevate our own opinions, not only of ourselves, but of our intellect and our capacity to comprehend. And yet, sin is the very, this sin is the very thing that God resists and creates a wedge between not only us and God, but between us and others, and ultimately even, it creates a wedge in our ability to understand ourselves. Sin is, by its very nature, to miss the mark. And if you are self-centered, you are inevitably off-center. For it is pride that says this, I will sleep with whomever I want. I will consume as much as I want. I will possess as much as I want. I will work when I want. I deserve what they have. It ultimately says, my will be done, not thy will be done. Now, this is something that we can fully understand uh, in this particular age of entitlement. Because right now, we are even seeing played out the economic ramifications of a growing attitude that, that this job, I'd rather not work than do a job that is below me. I know I had that attitude as a young man. I would move from job to job because often I felt like the job was below me. I didn't want to be like my dad or my grandfather who worked 
35 plus years in a steel mill providing for his family. That wasn't sexy enough for me. I wanted something more. And so that sort of belief that I deserved more, I was worth more, that I didn't need to be like those that were pinned by this, this existence of toil, even though God himself said to humanity when removed from garden that you will uh, live uh, in toil. This is the outcome of sin and it's in even, even our work, unfortunately, which is a God-given gift, we need something to give ourselves to, is also marked, unfortunately, by sin. It's infused with what can become toil and even the things that we think will satisfy us can quickly become, we can become disillusioned with whatever it is that we're doing because the grass is always greener on the other side. I actually just was struck by this and this age of entitlement is often even the opinion from the pew is, is that church is there to serve what you want. Uh, and in a time of quarantine, I'm, I'm sure some of you are watching me right now and you don't attend Door of Hope, but you're drawn to Door of Hope because it isn't where you were going you were going somewhere else, and now you can watch whatever preacher you want from the comfort of your own home. And some of you at Door of Hope are, are, you know, you've heard me preach hundreds of times, and so you're looking, you know, pastures are greener over there. If we were doing, you know, what, what you know, Amago was doing or Bridgetown was doing, you know, we would be doing better. But I, honestly, if I could be quite frank, I have no idea what doing better is in an age of speaking into a camera. This will never truly be, uh, uh, church in its truest sense, for the church is the people, and the church, this is a time in which our entitlement, our belief that church is there to serve me is being blown up, and we're recognizing that what makes church church is our surrender to Jesus in our humble service to one another, our commitment to one, one another, like in a marriage, our commitment for better or for worse, uh, but I think that the fickleness of human hearts, I was talking with other pastors, we're just wondering what it's even gonna look like when we can come back together. Uh, and I think it'll be a time of rebuilding. And I think what God's put upon my heart is that it's not something that we can live in fear of. We just have to continue to get on our knees and pray that God would utilize this season that has not taken him by surprise to grow us in the areas where we have fallen short. And I think that for me, this is important, is, uh, is I think that often even in the church, there is a, a sort of celebrity component to pastors, uh, and which feeds our egos. I mean, it's hard when you don't, you know, get the kudos after the sermon from the audience, but it's good because we should never be overly confident in what it is that we are doing. We should be confident in Jesus, which gives us a calmness and an ability to actually endure the ups and downs of life. Because anyone that builds their life on the pride of their accomplishments is building their lives on very fragile ground. In an age of entitlement, we have to understand that, that if you believe that you deserve more and I'm not gonna do anything that, that doesn't satisfy what I believe I deserve, it, historically that has led to economic desperation, even depressions. And I think that this is something that we're gonna have to reckon with 
Uh, as E. Stanley Jones wrote so long ago, probably back in the 20s, if we center ourselves on ourselves, we won't like ourselves. The penalty is to live with a self you can't live with. This is the cancer that poisons the soul. Pride, it may elevate ego, but it diseases the soul. That's why it says in Proverbs 29 that a man's pride will bring him low. That's why it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The early churches held historically to the, to the belief that Satan was an angelic being who became concerned and aware of his own beauty and that pride caused him to, to fall. Now, how much of that is church tradition and how much of that is as drawing ideas from some some miscellaneous scriptures, but the picture is the same, is that pride is the gaze of the soul turned inward upon self. What this tells us is that no matter how successful you are or will be, it will not satisfy when the gaze is turned in upon oneself, when one believes that they are the center of the universe around them, when one believes that this is this is their stage and the world is their audience. I was just talking with my daughter uh, last night and she was telling me of a friend that she was, he's famous. Uh, and I go, what do you mean he's famous? And she's like, he's already got like over a million followers on TikTok. And, and I, I think that this is the kind of mentality that we are often living in. Is it, it, We are seeing the very fulfillment of, of Andy Warhol's prophetic statement that there will be a day when everyone will be famous for 15 minutes and people come and go and now fame comes not because of even any accomplishments just because one has content that others might find funny or interesting at least for a little bit of time and then they will be quickly forgotten and this is the problem is that the ego is never satisfied while it is the center and it doesn't take long for it to no longer be the center which is devastating. It is a fragile ground to build one's life on. This is why it says in Proverbs 28, verse 25, he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Tim Keller once said that the human soul wants something so big that if all the empires in the world were poured into it, it would still not satisfy. In other words, that spiritual thirst, as I talked about last week, that there is a... a hunger that can only be satisfied by a reconciled relationship with God. But we turn that God-haunted appetite upon the things of this world and they just leave us more hungry and more unsatisfied. I just read a novel entitled Fat City, which follows two boxers in Sacramento. Uh, and this book was written in the 60s. It's a devastating and heartbreaking book, beautifully written. But one of the characters is 29 years old and his boxing career is already over and he was proud and he believed he was gonna be great. But the fact is, is that, that he was one of thousands of boxers who thought they would be great and he didn't have the punching power that would take him to the top and now at 29 years old his wife has left him he's sitting in a room uh, in in absolute despair working uh, picking onions in the onion fields outside of sacramento and it said that he believed 
for so long that his best life was coming and what he didn't realize is that he had already left, he had already lived it. And I think that this is something that people begin to discover. Time will show it to us inevitably if we don't come to it through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And this is the, the fact of life, that life is impossible and this is why we need a divine intervention. This is what we mustn't understand is if you choose yourself over God, you will lose yourself. In Luke chapter 17, verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. What do you have, scripture asks, that you did not receive? Why would we take pride in anything? Spiritual pride says the good things in my life is because I did it and because I deserve it. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says exactly what I just asked. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did, not indeed, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Uh, in other words, why would you pretend like you are the master of your own universe? Why would you act as if you are somehow self-made when in reality there are so many aspects of why it is we are where we are? things that are even out of our control that I always like to say when people ask me, do you believe in determinism or free will? And I say, I believe in limited freedom or freedom with boundaries. When it comes to our ability to save ourselves, I say that the will is absolutely unfree. <laughs> uh, when we talk about God's part and, and our part, I would say, I did the sinning, God did the saving. And God's intervention into the human dilemma uh, reminds me that I can't climb my way out of the dilemma. I need God to come down to me. This is why our symbol is a cross, not a ladder. Pride says, whether life is going well or not, I deserve this or I deserve better. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, what could be called the cosmic plagiarism. When you believe you are the author of what is in actuality a gift. Uh, humility is the recognition that life is a gift. I like what Jonathan Edwards once wrote. He said, a humble saint is suspicious of nothing in the world as much as he is of his own heart. Living in such a way that everything you do points to Jesus. I was thinking about the things that pride lead to, and, and I've seen this in my own life. I mean, believe me, humility is often learned, unfortunately, through the school of humiliation. And I have tasted the pride, the pride of thinking that I deserved to be famous, and then having that dream crushed by the fact that I was not good enough to be what I thought I should be. The, the pride of thinking I was a better preacher than the pastor I was working for and having just my rear kicked and humbled and having teaching taken away from me because I was living in this proud state uh, and, and I was speaking poorly of the one who was literally paying my bills and therefore I had removed from me uh, the gift that I'd been given of, of learning how to preach on a Sunday evening service. Nothing was more painful. I remember him telling me that I, I had to step down because of pride. 
and that I had to announce it myself to the congregation, which had, which had grown from about zero to 250 people. It was my second year ever of teaching. And I had to get up in front of all these young people and tell them that I had to step down because I was proud. They had no idea. And then my pastor got up and gave a sermon about the dangers of pride and used me as an illustration while sitting in the front row with my wife. Hum humility through the school of humiliation. I pray that none of you have to go through that. But what does pride do? And I, I was thinking back to that, those times of significant pride in my own life. Uh, and and I, I find that the first thing that I, I see pride does to us is it drains us of our empathy. Uh, to be weary of people that feel nothing is something that we should mark. When you don't feel anything, when someone seems unmoved, uh, we, we, should be, we should be weary of that person. Pride cannot weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh. And I'm sure right now you could even think of someone that would be marked by that lack of empathy. Uh, there, there are many within the public eye that fit that, that category. Uh, pride is always threatened. It cannot bear being in the presence of someone better. Pride magnifies the faults of other Christians and diminishes their graces, while it diminishes the faults and magnifies the graces of its subject. In other words, the one who is proud is incapable of seeing their own faults, their own blemishes, while at the same time magnifying the problems of everyone else. Because pride puts a person in a fragile state, they must protect that position of superiority and they will lash out at anyone that threatens that position. It despises pride in others. If you hate pride in others, take a look, not too long, into your own heart, because I think that often we hate in others what is so prominent in ourselves. How often have we heard about preachers who have fallen, who spent much of their pulpit career talking about the, about the very thing that they were secretly doing. Pastors that became known for their beautiful sermons about the importance of fidelity in their marriage while secretly living adulterous lives. Uh, there was one famous case of a pastor who railed against homosexuality week after week. I mean, it, he's, it became his primary platform only to be exposed and arrested in Florida uh, for exposing himself to a young man only to have multiple men come out in the church saying they were abused by him. I think that pride is, is, is one of those things that's incapable of, of, of being threatened, incapable of seeing its own sin while hating its own sin when it's seen in others. Pride robs you of joy. Why? Because you believe that everything in life is owed you. I think pride is at the root of this current climate of victimization. Uh, this victim culture that we live in or a culture that is, that is driven by... It's so fascinating to me to watch played out before our very eyes, even amongst friends and church family and family members in these battles between the right and the left, which increasingly I find myself uh, just so frustrated at how 
polarizing our nation is right now. And I have to be careful of my own pride in, in, in my own unwillingness to adhere to, <laughs> to any camp. I have to be careful to not think that I have somehow found the truly central position. But I have been just deeply bothered by, if you've ever read those two dystopian novels, 1984 and, and Brave New World, uh, they're, they're profound novels. George Orwell wrote 84, an American, that really spelled out what was coming in the 20th century through totalitarian regimes and the whole concept of Big Brother and total control of a society. Uh, and then, but then the, the other terrifying dystopian novel was written by an Englishman, Aldous Huxley, A Brave New World, in which a regime controls society, not by force, but by, well, it is using force, but it's force through the illusion of pleasure. And I think that if Orwell wrote the book that would describe much of Europe in the 20th century, Huxley described a dystopian future that describes much of America. Uh, and now there's this battle, I believe, both sides presenting us with two different dystopian possibilities. And I personally find both stances to be the very essence of what we're talking about here, pride. It's the belief that somehow somebody actually has the silver, silver bullet on how to create a prosperous society. Listen, a prosperous society always prospers at the expense of those that aren't prospering no matter what your particular ideal of government is. If it's capitalism or socialism, there is no silver bullet. Those that love capitalism are those that have benefited from capitalism. Those that love socialism are those that have benefited from that. And so, and if they're not benefiting from it, they think that that's gonna be better over there if we can get to that place. And this is the, the arrogance of A, not knowing nearly enough to even speak intelligently to it, and the false belief that humans are capable of fixing the problems of the world in their own strength. We should know better, friends, as Christians, that that just simply is not the case. We are told in the scripture that the days will become worse, the days will be darker before Jesus returns, and I believe he's coming soon, and I just find myself living in that passage in 2 Timothy, and in the last days, the love of God, the love of God will grow cold in the hearts of many, for people will become lovers of themselves, proud and boastful. Are we not seeing that played out right now? Pride robs us of joy because you believe everything in life is owed you. And it's either through anger or shame, it seems, in this particular cultural moment. To belong to yourself means that you trip over yourself at every turn. You become a problem instead of a person. So how do we move from this self-centered dilemma to a God-centeredness? Number one, you need to fix in your mind the fact that if you are self-centered, you are off-center. God is the center of everything. Anything else is frustration. Those who choose themselves at the center find that they are essentially choosing hell. This is why George MacDonald said, the one principle of hell is I am my own. This reminds us that everything in life is a gift. For what makes you differ from another? What did Paul write? For what do you have that you did not receive? Fix your mind on the fact that if you're 
self-centered, you are off-center. We have to see the problem so that we can accept the solution. Number two, and I would just invite you, ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, show me anything in me that is hindering my ability to love you and to love others. And if God is showing you that the problem is essentially your own self-love, a distorted and perverted love that is turned inward upon self, that is preventing you from experiencing grace and, and preventing you from giving grace, then it's something that needs to be repented of. Because number two, we need to fix our mind, fix in our mind that self-surrender is more than denying self of this or that thing. It is a fundamental change in ownership. It's not giving God this or that problem. That's why it's, it's not enough to just simply say, I want to give you my drinking problem or I want to give you my my tendency toward bigotry or racism. God wants you, the whole person, not your problems or your gifts. He wants all of it, the good, the bad, the intelligent and the foolish. What he wants is the right to be responsible for you. He has created you for himself and our satisfaction is found in a restoration of right worship with Him. That means that we have to understand that surrender is not giving little, little offerings to God. Surrender is all that I am and all that I have belongs to you, Jesus. I think this is important as, as we often in our own pride, the, the belief that we that what we have, we deserve. And when we see that being threatened, how quickly we grasp hold of it. I was talking with other churches because we have begun to see for the first time uh, uh, and since the coronavirus came is that there is, there, as it, we see it extending out, people are getting scared. Scarcity mentality sets in, giving begins to drop. And we had a significant drop last month, like a $30,000 drop. And that's significant. And, and I found myself asking the question is like, is this driven by, we don't know how long this is in, we need, to, we need to hunker down, we need to protect what is ours or what is mine, or I can't gather at the church, therefore I'm no longer a part of the church and I don't feel like it's my responsibility to keep lights on in a building that I can't go to. I don't know what the mentality is, but the question once again is, is, is what does it mean for us to be a community of faith and what does it mean for us to live in a place of surrender? And I believe that God is, is calling us and I, I recognize some people are just experiencing like they literally just don't have money to give. Hey, I don't, I, I, have, I have no issue with that. We, just as we have to be able to give freely, we also need to learn to receive when we need help. And I would just encourage you, if you're one who needs help right now financially, it is pride that often prevents us from asking for help. It's pride that often keeps us from giving. And so this is something that we need to understand. What God wants is possession of you. And that means that he wants, he wants your gifts and your problems. And would you trust him with that? Would you humble yourself? If you need help, reach out to the church and ask because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. If you're withholding from the church because you feel like you're not getting what you deserve, I would encourage you, ask what's at the root of that. And is it a self-focus or is it an other orientation? 
And, and I think that these are important questions that we have to ask. Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up your cross means that it's going to be a living death. It's what I call the good death. It's dying to that ego that wants to take control. Jesus, when he is asked what it will cost to follow him, the answer is only one answer. It costs everything. Christianity is not tried and found wanting, as Chesterton said. It's found difficult often and not tried. I've seen too many abandon their faith to know that the cost was too much. They had counted the cost and they just couldn't hang with the demands of King Jesus. Number three, do not compromise surrender. A half-given self is a divided self, and you will be a tormented Christian if you try to maintain one foot in the world and one foot as, as a follower of Jesus. You will be duplicitous, and it will divide you. And a divided heart is what leads to a lukewarm heart, and Jesus did not have much good to say about the lukewarm church. Pride always creeps back into a divided heart. Wherever self-centeredness survives, you will find resistance from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We cannot be divided. Number four, do everything for the love of God. Guilt and shame will not motivate us in this time. I, I, I can't be motivated as your pastor by by concerning myself with every whim and, and request that comes in. I have to humble myself and hear every word that comes in and pray through criticisms and, and pray, like not, I, I've found that I need to be careful to not take uh, praise too seriously or criticisms too seriously, but to bring them before the Lord. And if there are things that I need to repent of, I repent of them. If there are things that, that, that don't need to be repented of, I release them. But the fact is, is that I am called, if I am to be a good pastor, if I am to be a good shepherd of this church, along with the rest of the leadership of this church, our responsibility is to that audience of one, which is interestingly enough, a little easier when I can't look at people, <laughs> is that who am I preaching for? Who am I being a conduit of? And I think that that is the question that you must ask because all of our lives preach all of our lives are telling a message. And does your life speak the message of self-focus or does it speak the message of the cross, which is self-sacrifice? Are you laying down your life for Jesus and for the good of others? Pride must turn into humility. We must move from superbia to surrender. I was made for dependence upon him, and so are you. This is why it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7, through seven, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You guys, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I know that these days are so heavy. I find myself, I just get worn out by 
everything by the protests. But when I went to Cannon Beach, the amount of people that thought that we were living in Armageddon here in Portland, like how are you surviving in a city where there's so much craziness because everything is blown out of proportion should tell you and show you not to trust the, the limited information that we have because the, the vantage point of the rest of the United States around Portland is that we're like freaking every neighborhood is you know burning to the ground. And I was like, no, I actually haven't seen much except when I've gone downtown. And they're like, oh, really? I thought it was just all bad. I'm like, no. But just the exhaustion even of like the blown out of proportion narratives and the, and the, the anger that is being fueled at this group and that group. And, and some people say you're not doing enough and other people say you're saying too much. And, and it, there's just this insanity of not knowing where to stand. And it's easy for us to basically just shut down and turn inward upon ourselves and say, you know what, I don't need this, I don't need anyone. Uh, I reject all of this and, and the Lord just is, is saying, no, wait, I have chosen you to be poured out wine and broken bread for a hurting world. We are to be demonstrations of the very communion that we take, that we are to be servants to all because we are servants of one and that is Jesus. Pride robs us of relationship with God, relationship with others, and ultimately it destroys our ability to even be in right relationship with ourselves. The one who is proud is off center, but the one who is surrendered to King Jesus finds that I have Jesus, therefore I have everything. You guys, Jesus loves you on your worst day. He loves you. He's crazy about you. I pray that the thing that motivates you is his love for you and his love for this messed up world that he is in the business of reconciling to himself. So until next time, I hope that was fun because next week we get lust. So love you guys so much. I can't wait to be together again. Watch the feet of
bonds. Please conquer.